you turn back with me or on, onto your uh, uh, bulletin sheet, uh, or your order of service, rather, uh, to Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. Uh, as I said before, we pre- uh, Richard preached from this last week. I've also preached from it when I was going through a series on the, uh, the prayers of Paul for the church, uh, which was a number of years ago. Um, but it, I think you could probably preach from it every week for a year, and uh, there would just be new and uh, powerful uh, truth to come from it. Um, as we go through Ephesians, we, we're looking at it in the context of the, the letter uh, that we've been studying. But there's no doubt what's great here is that Paul kind of moves. It's like a breathing space, and he moves from his teaching and his exhortation and uh, his truth-telling uh, and uh, passing on to be very personal. And I think that's a great model. I think it's important because he makes clear uh, that for him, this is, he's not just a teacher. He's not just an academic. He's not just a leader. But he is, uh, as he's already said, he's personally engaged with his people. He shared with them not just the truth, but his life as well. And that comes across in this prayer. It's the second of his prayers uh, so far that are recorded here in this letter. And the great thing about prayer like this is, or like any, any prayer that's revealed, it reveals who we are. Uh, our prayer life, and this immediately uh, takes the sweeping hand of God over us all, our prayer life, our personal prayer life, reflects who we are spiritually. It reflects the life, or otherwise, that we have spiritually. Uh, in a sense, we're taken kind of like into a, you know, into a holy place here. We're taken into uh, the holiest place of Paul's life where he unfolds uh, his deepest desire for this people, the Ephesian church. We know he loved them greatly. Got that amazing passage in Acts which uh, records uh, their parting from one another on the beach and how moving and emotional that is. He, was, he really loved them. But this prayer, and the great thing about this prayer, it's not kind of sappy and sentimental. It's based on the truth that he's already been telling them. And uh, there's a great lesson for us there that the truth that we know from God's word will educate and will feed our prayer life and uh, will give us the fuel for our prayer life and will make our prayer life richer and deeper. And so people say, well, I don't know what to pray for. I don't know how to pray beyond uh, thank you, Jesus, for the food. Amen. Well, our, our soaking ourselves in the truth of what God wants for us will motivate and educate us to know how to pray then to the same God who loves us and who cares for us. We're disciples. So the learning that we do as disciples feeds into the prayer life that we live as children of the living God. And so we're, we're probably going to examine our own prayer lives a little bit this morning and feed, be fed on uh, the truth of God's word. I'm looking for my phone so I know not to preach. Okay, the introduction of the prayer is very much um, recognizing uh, really the impossibility of what he's asking. That's why he, he launches into prayer for them. That, that's why we pray, isn't it? Because it, it's impossible for us to live without it. To live as disciples, to live for Jesus, to live the way he wants us. It's impossible without prayer. And in verse 1, uh, sorry, in verse 14 he says, For this reason I bow 
my knee before the Father. And at the beginning of chapter 3, he says, for this reason, I, Paul. And he's launching back in many ways to the theme of the whole letter, which is in uh, verse, uh, in chapter 1, verse 10, which he says that God's plan is for all of us to be united in him, things in heaven and on earth. And you know, he spent the last couple of chapters talking about the Jews and the Gentiles and how they are naturally opposed to one another and hate one another. But in Christ, they're new creations and they come together and united. And what are they united in? They're united in the love of Christ. And uh, that, that impossible unity, you remember that? It's the unity of a, a Jew on the, on the wailing wall meeting with someone from ISIS with a... a, with a uh, a terrorist bomb strapped around their, their belly and coming together and weeping over one another in love and in unity because they've found Christ together. That's the kind of outrageous unity that Paul is speaking about here. And it was this unity that shook the world. It's the, it's the unity that, sh- that turned the world upside down. People said, this is unbelievable. See, they're slaves here and they're eating at the same table as their master's. And there's Jews here and there's Gentiles. There's all kinds of people. There's black and white. There's male and female. And they're all one in Jesus Christ. And that unity is the biggest, most powerful apologetic for the gospel because we live in a world that is riven by division and by strife and by self-desire and self-motivation and self-interest. In Christ, we are new creations citizens of the living God and it's this truth of the fact that Christ on the cross died for Jews and Gentiles died for every person who will come to faith it's that unity that we have because of his love it's that truth that deep and significant truth that drives us to pray the kind of prayer that Paul prays and it's the kind of prayers that we should pray if you're struggling to know what to pray for This is a great place to come. Uh, Praying not just for yourself, but praying for other people. So, let's have a look at one or two things here. The genuine prayer uh, and the faith that lies behind Paul's prayer here and his his motivation of the truth uh, enables him to pray reverentially. Okay, that's just by way of introduction, you know, that uh, we uh, recognize that he prays uh, reverentially. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Uh, it's both reverential and intimate, actually. But it is reverential. He, he bows his knees. Now, very often, that, that's not the language of Scripture for prayer. Prayer is often about standing in the presence of God, or even being prostrate in the presence of God. But uh, bowing the knee is, was a terminology for reverence and submission. And this is the one into whose presence the great apostle Paul is coming. Now we can, we can walk down the road, we can pray as we're driving, we can pray uh, prayers in all kinds of places. But there is something about making the effort, physical effort and the time and the dedication to bow the knee in reverence and in submission. Because it's a recognition of who he is. So there's this great humility before the living God that Paul has. It's beautiful because it's, it's not a distant reverential uh, desire that he has. It's not a, 
He's not afraid of God, but there's this recognition of who God is. But then he goes on to say that he's his father. And that, that balances it beautifully with the intimacy. You know, hey, God's my daddy. I can say anything to God. Yes, but he's also the one to whom we bow the knee. There, there's a, there is an intimacy, but it's not disrespectful. I think sometimes as we maybe say, oh, I don't need to bow the knee. I just pray to God as I'm walking in the hills. It means we can't be bothered. And it's because we're walking in the hills anyway. We just happen to pray. And it can be that we give them just part of our time or half an ear or half our knowledge or concern. But here is this great knowledge of reverence and intimacy that God represents in Christ and in the Father the family unit that we now belong to. The love that we have been overwhelmed by. The divine parental love that is ours that he accepts us, the prodigal father who prodigally accepts us because of his son, Jesus Christ. And what sin does at every single level, sin is what divides the family and divides people from one another. You see it right from the very beginning. It's terribly obvious that Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and the people uh, following them are divided and separated and set that is Satan's task, separating us from God and from one another. And that is what we have fallen for and are deceived by. And yet God in Christ, as we come to him by faith, is our father. Sin has destroyed that image of the family so that even sometimes we struggle with the concept of fatherhood because of maybe abusive or distant or uh, absent fathers that we have known ourselves. But we seek the living knowledge of God to give us an understanding of his perfect fatherhood as uh, is reflected in our relationship with him. We belong. You you belong in Christ. It's the greatest belonging. There's actually nothing else that matters than belonging to the Father through Jesus Christ and recognizing the estrangement that sin brings, that separates us from him. Even as Christians, the sin that we lurch back into is always separating us from the Father. However enticing and tasty and enjoyable it seems to be, it separates us from the good uh, grace of God. So, uh, truth allows this reverential and intimate prayer. But truth also allows... uh, Uh, Paul to pray uh, in a focused and in a confident way. So he knows what he's praying for. He knows that unity is absolutely crucial because it reflects the Trinity and it reflects salvation. And he wants that for his people because that is what will change the world. Okay? That's what will change the world. And uh, so he is confident of what he's praying for for his people. And it's not pie in the sky, airy-fairy stuff. It's what will change our day-to-day lives every single day for Jesus Christ. That place of prayer. Intimate, personal, individual, private relationship with the living God. You need to ask yourself if you've got that. Don't rely on anybody else. Don't rely just on church attendance or anything else. What is your personal walk, knowledge, 
as a child of the living God. Do you have that? Nothing else matters. Your knowledge, your covenantal background, uh, your um, flirting with Christianity at different levels will not save you. It needs to be in an ongoing way that ongoing personal relationship of prayer. If you haven't got that, you must cry out to the living God for it. And if you're a Christian and haven't prayed this last week, then you need to stand up straight and get a grip of yourself. And stop kidding yourself about life. And start living every day as an impossibility. Because it is in Christ. You cannot live the Christian life tomorrow without prayer. And without recognizing that you need bathed in the prayer of the Holy Spirit of God to enable you to live the Christian life. There's two main requests here. And the the, the requests are rooted in our struggles. Our struggles uh, as Christians... Uh, because we struggle with being weak, okay? He's praying for strength because he knows we're weak. Our struggles with being unfulfilled, he's praying for fulfillment in our lives. Our struggle of feeling empty, he talks about wanting to be filled. He knows what we're struggling with. This is not an ivory tower message. He knows what we battle with every single day as Christians, and he is praying into that for the people. And this is what we can learn and what we can grow in in our own lives and in our own uh, walk with Jesus Christ. And so what does he focus on? Focus on two things. I'm going to f- mainly deal with the first one and just mention the second. Uh, and the first is the power of God's love. That's what he focuses on. If you had one prayer to make for the, the church here, one crucial prayer, one theological prayer, one doctrinal prayer, one important prayer, one deep prayer, one intellectual prayer, what would it be? This is it. This is it. You can't go beyond it. That we understand the power of God's love. 16 to 18. What does he want for this people in Ephesus, in this early church that was part of the life-changing movement of Christianity? That they may uh, understand through the Spirit that Christ would dwell in your hearts and that you may be rooted and grounded in love and so on. Wonderful. Memorize it. Memorize this passage. Memorize this prayer and make it yours. He's saying, look, um, this people need what you have. Okay? He wants them to plug into the glorious resources of God. Is that that what we have? You know, God's weak. He's God's helpless. He doesn't do much. I don't see much. This is someone who can see that it's God who has the resources to enable us to only got the resources to enable us to live this way, to love him, to love one another, when every atom of our being maybe goes against that. He has glorious riches, riches of his glory, that he, he focuses on giving to us when we ask for this. So, Lord God, give me a new Mercedes. He doesn't promise that his glorious riches will give us that. Lord, give me the relationship that I wanted or give me the house that I would like. He doesn't promise that. He may give it, but he doesn't promise it. What he promises is this outstanding, uh, glorious recognition of his love. Uh, and he, Paul prays into uh, our inner beings. 
He recognizes that this is not a surface request. This is uh, to do with our very inner beings, that you may strengthen with power through your spirit in your inner being, in your very core person, what you are as an ego, what you are as an individual, that in that very inner, inner being, what is the real you, the truth, uh, the depth and the honesty of what makes you you, that you know his strength there. Not on the surface. Not at 11 o'clock on a Sunday. Not just for the two minutes that we read the Bible in the morning or at night. But in our inner being, what makes us tick is made strong in the person and in the presence of Jesus Christ. Now recognize these are difficult terms and they're difficult to explain and they're difficult to experience, actually. I find it very difficult sometimes to... Uh, put into words for myself or put into experience what that means. But somehow we just know what it is to love and serve God. But in order to to do that impossible reality, to live out grace, uh, this is God's gift and we need the power. You know, he says that you may be strengthened through his spirit in your inner being with power. This is God's work. We can't work up ourselves. It's not about the number of degrees you've got theologically or the number of years you've been in church. This is his work, and we need his Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God in our inner being uh, is the power that will enable us only to love him and understand him. We need the Holy Spirit. This is not a step up. This is not for a special Christian. This is not a second blessing that you're a kind of ordinary Christian and then you become a very super holy Christian by having the uh, Holy Spirit. This is for every Christian. And it's not a second blessing. It's multiple blessings. It's what we seek and crave for till the day we die. More filling of the Spirit of God which will enable us to understand what that means. What does it mean? What does it mean? It means Christ in us. That's what it means. that, That you may understand by the power of His Spirit that Christ dwells in your heart through faith. Now that's what we want to experience as Christians. In our inner being, Christ dwelling in our lives. Not just alongside us, not just when we come to church, not just intellectually, but that Christ, by his Spirit, lives in every believer. There's a unity with the Trinity in every believer that makes that's your identity and mine that makes us special. Not because of ourselves, but because of his glorious commitment to us. It speaks here of Christ dwelling in our hearts. Now, you know that word. You know that word. It's like the the word for tabernacle. It's like the word for, you know, how God dwelt with his people in the Old Testament. He he lived in the tabernacle or the, the sanctuary or the temple. And that was his presence among the people. But now, we are the temple. We are the tabernacle. He comes not and just, he doesn't just dwell around us, he dwells in us. And the word is, is that he makes his home among us. That's what it means. It means God makes his home with us. He's not lodging. He doesn't just stay with you as long as you're a good boy or a good girl. And the minute you're bad, he's away. I'm going to try somewhere else. I'm going to lodge with some other people who are holier and nicer than you. You're bad. He doesn't do that. He dwells. He, he is committed to being with us 
forever. He's not passing through. Now, we've got a visual illustration today, John and Kim. Okay, they've had a baby this week. Elijah. Elijah. Now, they take the baby home. That baby's with them. Their lives are changed forever. It'll never be the same. No, no longer just one, but two in the home. And that's the family unit. And you don't give them away. You don't have them just for a month. And say, well, I've had enough now. I'll go back to what it was. You now have this child. The child resides with you. It's part of the family, part of the home. And that's the kind of, it's an imperfect illustration, but it's the kind of idea, you know, their lives will be turned upside down again. And so with Christ, Christ dwells with us. He's not going anywhere. He's not leaving. He will always be with us. Every single step of the way. In our best moments and in our rubbishiest moments. When we let him down most and when we glorify him most by our means, he will be with us. Yes, we will grieve him. Yes, we will quench his spirit. Yes, we will not sense his presence because we will be far from him. But Christ is with us for the long haul. That's what we need to grasp about the love of Christ. It's the essence of our faith. This is what Paul is saying. He said, what do you think is the essence of the faith? The essence of the faith is Christ in us and his love. His love in us. That is the essence of the faith. His love in us and for us. It's the basis for our very existence. That is the basis, you know. For our existence as Christians is that God loves us in Jesus Christ so much that he, he gave himself for us. And now you can reject that all day long. But you will be impotent and you will be lost if you will reject that. And if your hope and trust is on anything else, you are hellbound in a most dreadful way. Because his love is the greatest thing of all. And he explains that by saying you are rooted and grounded. And I want you to know that. You're rooted and grounded in love. He gives us these two very quick illustrations that are different. One's about a tree roots and one's about a building foundation. And the Bible uses these illustrations all over the place. Now we've seen this week in Edinburgh what it's like when you don't get the building right if you're in school. And there's a lot of primary kids that are delighted, but that's not good. Because things go wrong. Eventually, it gets found out. When we, when, we, uh, when we cut corners, when we don't get the foundation right, you can look, and I can look like a Christian, and even a preacher, for all my days. But if the foundation's not right, if privately there is no life of love and prayer and commitment to Christ, then the, when the storms come, we will stumble and fall. And so here you've got this great picture of being rooted and grounded in what keeps us standing. Last man standing. Last woman standing. We will be standing if we are rooted and grounded. What in? Reformed theology. No. Although Reformed theology covers that. It is rooted, grounded, and established in a personal relationship of love with Jesus Christ, which will lead you to Reformed theology. Always. And what he's saying here is that that covers everything. It covers absolutely everything that you may face and that you may go through in your life. Um, 
It's deeper than any darkness that you might go through. He says that. So, however far you've strayed today, and there's people that are not coming to church here now who love Jesus Christ, but have drifted from him because they think they've gone too far. You've never gone too far to turn back to the Lord Jesus Christ because of its width or breadth. I never know which quite one to use. It doesn't matter how high your experiences of life are, what buzz that you've received from any experience in life that you might be tempted to think is better than Christ. Nothing will top knowing and experiencing the height of Christ's love that he speaks about here. The breadth and the length and the height and the depth. It it engulfs us so that every grain of sand that we experience is nothing compared to the vast and glorious love of Jesus Christ which covers everything. And so I ask, do you know it? Even even in a tiny proportion, because that's all we ever know, isn't it? But do you know it? Do you shake your fist at God when things go wrong? He's not my Santa Claus. He's not giving me what I want. Oh, I'm going to turn my back on him. It's too hard. It's too tough. It's not too hard and too tough. It's far worse than that. It's absolutely impossible to live the Christian life. Don't kid yourself that it's just hard and tough. It's hard and tough. We're so oppressed. It's difficult. It's hard. Difficult to be a Christian. It's impossible to be a Christian unless we are plugged into the power of God and into the love of God and knowing that it's his love that sustains us and keeps us going. And you know what the great thing, great thing? The thing is it's beyond knowledge. So you can't get a degree in it. And you can't study more to attain it. Although you will find out more as you look into God's word. It's, in other words, it's not simple. I think what he means there when he says um, that it surpasses knowledge is that knowledge isn't enough. Bible knowledge isn't enough. It's hugely significant, but it's not in itself enough. I know and I've met many proud ignorant, godless people who know their Bibles very well. It's not simply about knowledge. It surpasses knowledge. It's about relationship that feeds the knowledge and that inspires the knowledge and that makes us want the the knowledge more. You know, it's... Yeah. I think that's hugely important. It's beyond knowledge. And last, so that... the power of God's love, that's what he wants to talk about. And then, uh, very briefly, he also wants uh, not just to know God's love, but also to know, therefore, as a follow-on, the fullness of God. Not just a dribble of God, not just a tiny bit to keep us going. The fullness of God, that's what he says. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses not the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What do you think? What, what do you think it would be like to be filled with the fullness of God? It, what do you have in your mind when you think of someone filled with the fullness of God? Someone kind of serene, sort of distant from everyone else, with a kind of halo. Now, being filled with the fullness of God is loving Christ that enables you to walk in the gutter to help someone in need. And give them a cup of cold water. 
for Christ's sake. It is living out the kind of love, the sacrificial love that Christ had for us in crossing the road to help, in caring about other people because we are motivated, not for merely social reasons, but because the love of Christ constrains us to serve and to know and to love God and to love one another. So the fullness of God is... uh, being full, okay? So it means being full. And it, what he's talking there about in prayer is fulfillment. You know, you're not empty. You're not, you're not looking around for the next buzz, for the next excitement to, to make your life worthwhile. You've found fullness, contentment, peace, because you know who you are and you know who you're loved. And you've got a purpose, a noble purpose uh, in life, even as the most ordinary person, we've got, I've got the most noble purpose because I have to share this love and I have to be part of this new citizenship that lives in unity with one another. That's where completeness is for us. And that's where our relationship with him will blossom. You will not get that from a sermon. I'm sorry. You're going to need to have to work at your relationship with Jesus Christ not to earn your salvation, it's all been done. It's freely done, but simply to develop it and to understand it because this prayer is based on truth. It's based on truth. I, I don't really have much time for people who say, yeah, I love God and it's great to, to, to serve God, but don't give me theology of the Bible. That's just what divides churches and that's what causes problems. That's too easy and it's too cheap because unless we know the truth okay i know there's lots of problems and difficulties and and misunderstandings and wrong emphasis but the truth will set us free it's the truth that sets us free and god jesus came as the word okay and fleshed yes we see him but we see him because of the word and so the truth will motivate and stimulate our prayers we're going at the most important week Ever in St. Columbus, a week of prayer from next week. The building across the road could be blown up tomorrow. That is insignificant. What we're doing is building a spiritual kingdom, and we can only do it by prayer. So make the time to be there at 7 in the morning and join in this foundational work and pray these prayers for one another, not just for ourselves, but for one another. So that we blossom and grow in the work. And therefore, we come to the conclusion very briefly, which I'm not really going to spend time on. But truth and prayer, what will it lead to? It will lead to praise and doxology. Doxology, just praise of God. Now to him who is able, it's like he just, Paul just, knowing this, he can't stop. But, well, he has to stop and just praise God. And with this great doxology, who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now, we're going we're gonna to repeat that together at the end of the service. You've got it on your sheets. We'll all say the doxology together today. That's a good mark of our unity. And it's a good mark of our prayer for one another. But this is a great prayer. That's a great praise. I wonder sometimes how... Uh, dull we, I am in response to God and his word. You know, I read the Bible and I close it and I go on with my life. 
There's no praise. There's no doxology. It's routine. It's uh, ritualistic. It doesn't change what I'm doing or thinking or being. Genuine interaction with the living word will feed our prayers and will stimulate our praise to him. And this is a great little doxology. It's full of superlatives. It doesn't come across terribly well in the English. But this is to the one who is able to do more, more than we ask, more than we even think. You think how great your brain is and what it can think. And amazed by the, uh, the, the ability of surgeons to work on the brain as they've done with Katrina this week so, so easily. But yes, yeah, so delicate what knowledge they've got. And uh, we, we can think great thoughts and we have great imaginations. But he says he's able to do more than we can ask. You know, we think, oh, if I ask for a big thing, God will give me a little thing. You know how it is? You ask for the most and maybe you'll get something. It's the opposite with God. He asks, he gives us, he can give us more than we ask or even think. Uh, and more than we can even ask or think. Much more than we can ask or think. Super much more than we can ask or think. That's the language that we have here. That's the superlatives in the Greek that we have. It's uh, super much, much more than we can ask or think. That is the God that we have. We often treat him like a miser because we don't base our knowledge of him and our prayers to him on the truth. And we don't think we are more sinful than we can ever imagine and more separate and distanced from him than we can ever put our finger on, yet more loved than we can ever imagine. I'm just going to finish with this great verse that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, which I guess is in the same theme altogether. Uh, but as it is written, when he speaks about the wisdom of the Spirit and the, the Lord of glory, he says, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. We are not even... We're not even in the starting blocks for knowing what God has provided, what lies ahead for us, but which we can taste now. As we pray this prayer, as we live this prayer, as we focus on loving God and loving one another as the absolute foundation and root of our faith, may that be what we do. Amen. May God bless our thoughts in that word and if you are not a Christian today can I just implore you to come to Jesus